0: A college professor turned globe-trotting EQ entrepreneur. His mission? Each week, Dan joins prominent authors in decoding how emotions drive outcomes and make people tick. Now, on to the show.
1: Hello, I'm Dan Hill, the host of Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight here on the New Books Network, which has as its motto, Sharing Knowledge So People Can Thrive. Today's guest is Tom Hartman. He is a four-time winner of the Project Censored Award a New York Times bestselling author of 32 books and America's number one progressive talk radio show host. His show is syndicated for Sirius XM, as well as local stations from coast to coast. It's simulcast on the Free Speech TV network nationwide. Mom, welcome to the show.
0: Well, thank you, Dan. It's great to be here.
1: Well, this is uh, certainly an important topic and one rife with emotions. How is it that we have such a terrible predicament with health care in the country? Um, Obamacare was supposedly going to clean things up for us, but obviously we haven't gotten there.
0: Well, as a starting point of every other developed country in the world, uh, at various times, starting with uh, Germany in 1884, when they developed their first single-payer healthcare system under Otto von Bismarck, when it was the German Empire. Um, has defined healthcare as a right rather than a privilege. And when a government defines something as a right, it becomes the obligation of the government to make sure that that uh, right is, is met, is acknowledged, is, is brought into being, or at, le- at the very least is protected. And uh, we've never done that here in the United States. We still define healthcare as a privilege. If you've got enough money, you get it. If you don't have enough money, you're toast. And so as a starting point, every effort that we have made to, <clears throat> excuse me, to somehow uh, provide healthcare to people has always been uh, outside of that frame of rights and therefore within the frame of who can make a buck off this. Um, uh, because, you know, m- privileges, like you have the privilege of owning a car, which means, Hey, any car manufacturer can try to get your business and somebody can make a buck off selling you a car. Um, so as a consequence of that, uh, our government has, uh, you know, not uh done a particularly good job of making sure that everybody has health care sure uh you know the 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 genesis of this largely goes back to the uh late 1800s um in in i you know i mentioned in 1884 uh Otto von Bismarck got health care for the german uh empire um around that same time that same decade a, a young german man by by the name of uh Ludwig uh, excuse me, Frederick Ludwig Hoffman traveled from Germany, to the United States, to the age of 17 arrived here with five bucks in his pocket. You know, the classic kind of immigrant story. And, uh, he was a, a, a genius with numbers. And, uh, he got a job with the Prudential uh, life insurance company, the largest insurance company in America at the time. And, uh, started running numbers on on uh, things that would interest them in terms of writing life insurance policies and found, for example, he's the guy who discovered the statistical association between tobacco smoking and, and lung cancer, uh, between exposure to asbestos and mesothelioma, uh, between uh, fibrosis of the lungs and working in, in cotton mills. Uh, he also discovered the association between a diet of high in processed foods and and uh, dozens of different kinds of cancers he wrote a book about that that is still in print so he was well regarded and uh relatively famous guy in the late 1800s in the first three decades of the 20th century um he applied these skills on behalf of prudential prudential at the time uh, was just beginning to write life insurance policies for black people and so he decided to figure out what was going on with black people in america ran the numbers and found that uh, black people were dying uh, and getting sick at much higher rates than were white people on a per capita basis and um, came to two conclusions out of this, which he published in a book that that was published the same year that the Plessy versus Ferguson decision gave us legal apartheid in the United States, 1896. Um, His book was titled Race Traits and Tendencies of the American Negro, And the conclusion he drew was, from all of his number crunching, was that, number one, blacks were genetically inferior to whites, profoundly genetically inferior, and that without whites uh, helping them, blacks would die out. In fact, he made the assertion that blacks uh, and African Americans were much healthier during slavery uh, than they were post-slavery. Keep in mind, this was after the failure of Reconstruction. And then number two, therefore... If white people simply made sure that black people never had access to health care in the United States, that would, quote, solve the race problem in America, end quote, by causing uh, black the black race, as it were, in this country to die out. And he published this book. He traveled around the country giving speeches on this. Uh, Prudential started uh, charging black people much higher prices for life insurance than white people. That persisted, by the way, until the 1960s. Um, And, uh, his theories became the basis of the American eugenics program that was started by President Woodrow Wilson in the 1920s and, uh, or in the 19 teens rather, excuse me. And, um, and carried through in the 1920s that itself became the basis for Hitler's final solution and his uh, racial and eugenics theories. So, uh, when Teddy Roosevelt in 1912 proposed a national healthcare system as part of his Square Deal, the blowback was: "But what about Frederick Hoffman's proof <laughs> that you know we 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 have to deny healthcare to black people? How are you going to do that?" And that killed Teddy Roosevelt's program. Uh, same thing when Franklin Roosevelt proposed this in 1936. Uh, that was the blowback. But we don't want black people to have it. In 1947, when Harry Truman uh, actually uh, tried to get a single payer system uh, into and through Congress. That was the blowback. Uh, We don't want black people covered. And the same thing happened in 1961 when John Kennedy proposed it. And in 1965, when Lyndon Johnson finally got Medicare through, the white Southern racist senators came forward and said, uh, we need to have, there needs to be a bar set in Medicare. Uh, Even though we're talking about black people over 65, They're still black people Um, There needs to be a bar set high enough that most uh, black people will not be able to afford to show up at our hospitals and use Medicare. And that's why there's a 20% gap. Uh, Medicare Part B only covers 20% of hospitalization costs, was to discourage black people from using it. Um, So those theories uh, really influenced the discussion and debate in the United States uniquely. This discussion was not happening in any other developed country in the world from uh, the 1880s right up until the 1980s. And then in 83, Reagan stopped enforcing the Sherman Antitrust Act, and we went from hundreds of uh, small insurance companies, life insurance or health insurance companies, to about a dozen major ones. And what that did is it turned it into a a very profitable, very politically powerful industry uh, that literally generates a billion dollars in profits every week and
1: wow, a billion a week. It, wow. Yeah.
0: And 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 an in- industry that size and that powerful um, can easily squash any politician who wants to give everybody in America, you know, health in health care without um, giving profits to the health insurance companies, squash them like a buck. So pre-1980, from 1880 to 1980, it was all, all about race. And from 1980 to now it's all oh, about
1: money. profits. Yeah. Going back to the race part with Hoffman, if I remember right from the book, uh, he married into a Georgia family. Um, Yes. Did that just merely reinforce his racism? Did he bring it from Germany? I mean, he seems instrumental. I mean, to tie into eugenics is is pretty horrific.
0: Well, he you know actually eugenics was kind of created on the foundation of Hoffman's work. It was just conventional wisdom at the time. It was referred to as scientific racism, and that was not a you know a pejorative. That was you know a kind of a like scientific anthropology, you know. Um, and uh, it was widely held in the United States in the 1880s and 1890s when he wrote Race Traits that blacks were inferior, that there was an evolutionary hierarchy that started with, African America, with Africans out of Africa and, and that uh, hit its peak with Caucasians in Scandinavia, and uh, thus the whole Aryan race thing. So he wasn't outside of the mainstream. Sure. Um, I'm guessing that the Southern Belle that he married, who had a kind of a plantation background, uh, certainly didn't didn't dissuade uh,
1: uh, him from that course. Yeah,
0: yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but but yeah, I think he was more simply echoing the sentiments of the time. Sure. Um,
1: so if um, we if, if we jump to um, Obamacare, because of course it was notable that the particularly the Southern Republican governors tended to not want to enroll. Is that to be taken as seemingly wanting to deny uh, blacks, once again, you know, expanded health care coverage?
0: I think that's a good piece of it. I mean, there are 12 states that have refused to expand Medicaid, and all, I believe all of them, there may be a single exception to that, were former slave states. And 60% of all African Americans live in, in the South, in one fairly concentrated geographic area. And that the the south is where medicare has absolutely not been expanded and you know they still fight it from texas to florida and uh so i i i'm i'm of the opinion i have i have nothing to base this on because senators and and members of congress no longer stand up and give speeches about race um but uh like they did in the 60s but i'm i I would guess that that's probably still a very large part of it
1: yeah no it it makes sense to me that (laughs) That's the unspoken part of the compact here, uh, as, as heinous right. as it is. Um, Paul Krugman, who I always admire the columns of, uh, suggested part of what's going on here with healthcare and so many other things is that the Republicans don't want government to actually improve the lives of people for fear the government gets a, a greater mandate and, and more opportunity to make requests of the rich donors that help support the Republican Party. Uh how much you mentioned the the incredible lobbying power of the insurance industry? How about the perspective of of rich donors and whether or not they are an additional blockage to this desire for healthcare?
0: They're they're uh, mutu- It's a mutual interest society, Dan. <laughs> <laughs> The, the health insurance industry doesn't want to lose their profits sure. uh, for very wealthy people. Even very expensive health insurance is just a drop in the bucket in terms of their yeah. you know, annual or monthly expenses. So they don't really care. And um, and uh, and they don't want their taxes increased. And uh, it would every proposal for Medicare for all and, and frankly, every country in the world uh, that funds health care through through some sort of single payer system does have higher taxes on very, very wealthy people as a way of paying for the healthcare for pretty much everybody else. And, uh, Medicare for all in the United States would be no exception to that. It wouldn't be onerous. I mean, we're not even talking about raising taxes back to where they were when Ronald Reagan came into office. In fact, we're talking about less than half of that, uh, you know, personal income taxes. They were 74% when Reagan came into office, uh, they're at 36% or, or 35% right now. And, uh, the proposal that, uh, that Congress is looking at is raising them to 39%. And that's only in the top tax bracket. That's only for people making more than $400,000 a year. So, you know, how this is going to play out, I'm not sure, but they're, they're, they're absolutely, you know, you've identified a, a mutuality of interests here.
1: Yeah. And, and disinterest in other human beings, unfortunately. Yeah. The the um, On page 121, you have something I think is, is really striking and, and merits a, a good uh, discussion explanation by yourself. That's the idea that we could actually take the 10 largest publicly traded insurance companies and based on their market capitalization, we'd be better off just essentially buying them even at a slightly inflated price because uh, we'd all accrue the benefit. Can you uh, explain that a bit further than I did?
0: Yeah, it's a way of dealing with the fact that every time somebody starts talking about you know, a national health care program that would diminish the size, profits, or even the existence of the health insurance industry, uh, the industry responds by just pouring hundreds of millions of dollars down the throats of politicians all across the United States and mobilizing its PR army of op-ed writers and think tanks. And that's a significant and formidable obstacle to try to take on, as Barack Obama discovered, which is why Obamacare... Embraced the insurance companies rather than you know kicking them to the side, as would have been much more uh, efficient for the United States. The average American family spends right now three thousand dollars a year more for healthcare than does the than do the citizens of any other developed country. Um, you know, Canadians uh, save almost four thousand dollars a year compared to us. So uh, my thought was, how do we get around this? How do we how do we stop the health, big health insurance companies from trying to trying to block this? And, uh, you know, one strategy, the so-called free market strategy, would just be to uh, go to the New York Stock Exchange and the various exchanges where, where their stock is traded and buy it, just buy all their stock. And if you add them all up, it comes to about $700 billion and, you know, toss in some extra for expenses and for retraining re, uh, and relocating their employees and, and uh, you know, and for some of the smaller companies that might be harder to buy. Uh, unless you go, you know, you cut a one-on-one deal with them. And I figured, you know, at worst, it's going to cost a trillion dollars, which is just like the first year of the, of the Trump tax cuts. So, uh, you know, it's not something that's outside of the possibility of what the American government could pull off.
1: Oh, no, definitely the government would have the the resources and the means to pull it off. Since, since stocks can be bought and uh, taken majority shares, is there any way this could be done even outside the government, just perhaps?
0: It would take, you know, it would require require somebody or some group of people who have access. If you you just want to buy majority shares so that you could, you know, kind of just undermine the companies from within or something like that, you could do it for half a trillion or less. Um, But it, it would be a pretty expansive conspiracy that would involve a whole lot of cash. I doubt that's going to happen.
1: Could, could you break one company in the cartel by targeting one to seek to take over and uh, change the dynamics of the industry, perhaps? I don't know. I, I realize it's a That's pipe. That's a question to put yeah. to,
0: a, you know, to, to a corporate raider, you know, to somebody, <laughs> like somebody who
1: does
0: that for a living.
1: Sure. Let, let's turn to a different angle on this, uh, trying to you know, get to a better outcome for people. Uh, doctors and their compensation, your, your book certainly suggests that they are, in the United States, wildly overpaid compared to the rest of the world. I think I'm quoting you well, directly. De- on that. It
0: depends. I, I, I would say pediatricians, general practitioners, um, are are wildly underpaid. Um, psychiatrists, wildly underpaid. Um, so
1: certain specialists, in other words.
0: Yeah, but uh, but there are specialties in the United States where doctors are making obscene amounts of money, and um, you know, way out of proportion to the services they're providing. And 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 you know, you can just compare that with every other country in the world. And, and frankly. I would much rather go to a doctor who uh, is who went into medicine uh, because they they believed that it was their calling in life to heal people than uh, to go to a doctor who went into medicine because it was a quick way to make a couple million dollars and retire at the age of 60 or 50. Um, you know, I, I lived in Germany for a year and the, the place where I lived had a, a little health clinic attached to it. And I got to know this one particular physician there, Dr. Gere, quite well. And uh, one day I asked him, you know, how much do you pay? How much do you paid? How much do you make? Um, and he said, uh, I mean, this was in euros at the time, or maybe it was Deutschmarks. In fact, this was 1986. Um, he said, uh, as I recall, uh, around 110 or $120,000 a year. And I said, wow, doctors in America make a lot more than that. And he's like, you know, it's a, it's a good pay. He said, "This is, you know, pretty much the average in Germany. It's, it's, you know, high end. It's what lawyers make. It's what you know other people make. It's, um, and I think now in Germany they're probably making about twice that. But um, you know, most company in most countries, doctors are not multimillionaires. Okay, and, uh, yeah, they are uniquely here.
1: Yeah, uh, and how about the hospital empires? I mean, there's been some." Blowback lately. The New York Times, for instance, was reporting you know wildly different compensation rates for the same procedure in hospitals, and yet it's you know it's all tremendously opaque normally.
0: Yeah, well that's you know the hospital industry has become a for-profit industry too. Uh, you know, back in the '70s, I owned a, a an herbal tea company in in outside of Lansing, Michigan, in Oakland, Michigan, and uh, we had 18 employees, and and you know we bagged up and sold herbal teas all over the country, and uh i bought health insurance for all of my employees and i remember you know i wrote the checks every month that it was 35 dollars per person per month and it was that cheap because in michigan at that time the law required all hospitals to be not-for-profits to be non-profits there were three hospitals in the lansing area Inga medical which was run by the county saint lawrence which was owned by the catholic church and sparrow hospital which had been endowed by a guy named mr sparrow Who was uh, one of the co founders of Oldsmobile back in the day? And this was his legacy. But they were all nonprofit. And the health insurance companies were required by law in Michigan in the 70s to be nonprofits. And so we had Blue Cross Blue Shield, uh, and it was a nonprofit. And the system worked actually fairly well. You know, health insurance was not a a huge burden for people, Uh, it was not a huge burden for employers. It worked well. You didn't, you know, the health insurance companies didn't make you jump through 300 hoops to get healthcare. (laughs) Yeah. The hospitals didn't screw you at every opportunity um, because, you know, with a nonprofit, your first obligation is to uh, do what the mission of the nonprofit is, you know, to care for people or to pay for the care of people um, with a for profit. Your first mission is to make a buck and and you do whatever is necessary to make that happen. It's, it's very unfortunate that the Reagan, you know, big part of the Reagan revolution was to undo those. Pretty much every state in the union had laws similar to Michigan's requiring. Nonprofit hospitals and nonprofit insurance companies, and that's all a thing of the past,
1: yeah, no, it it honestly drives me crazy when people think that fail, fail to look at the dark undersides of the so-called Reagan revolution. As I read the books, since this is a program about you know e q emotional intelligence and emotional dynamics, it was uh, it's a very good book. It's a very tough book to read because, as you've alluded to earlier, we kind of had two stages in those who were opposed. And the first one started out with, you know, racial animosity, if not outright hatred, and condescension, and then we move into the eighties and beyond, and we have greed, and players who don't seem to be shamed no matter what, and on the other side, for most ordinary Americans, uh, you have a combination of fear that this could drive them into bankruptcy, uh, and wondering what in the world's going on. So there is anxiety combined with the sadness because. Uh, it seemed like there's no chance for reforms at times that uh, we have such powerful players involved that we're not going to get to a better place, and yet we should. So left with both rage and despair. At least that's my reaction in reading the book, and not against you, obviously, but against the uh, status quo. Any uh, parting words that you can can offer here?
0: This is a political problem, and uh, and and you you summed it up very very well there, Dan. It's a political problem. It's going to take a political solution. And uh, it's a very, you know, the idea of providing everybody with health care um, has gone beyond the novelty phase of Obamacare and the Tea Party and all that stuff. And, and we've all seen that the death panels never materialized and, and grandma's doing just fine. And so I think the, the, a large chunk of the public and certainly uh, virtually the entire Democratic Party uh, are ready for this and uh the you know if you poll these kinds of things they poll out between 65 and 80% depending on how you ask the question you know do you think that the government should provide healthcare to everybody in America if you add in words like like in Canada or like in every other developed country in the world it polls even higher in, in most it depends on you know where and who but generally speaking so i think that this is a ultimately uh an issue that we're going to have to solve through politics And to that end, there are a bunch of groups, National Nurses United, uh, Physicians for National Healthcare, one of the largest doctors organizations in the country, is calling for single-payer healthcare. National Nurses United, which is either the largest or the second largest nurses union in the United States, calling for national healthcare. Obviously, the Democratic Party, uh, most, uh, the majority of uh, elected officials in the Democratic Party are in favor of this. And uh, even a few Republicans, you know, so I think it's coming. I really do. And I hope that this book uh, is a contribution to that dialogue.
1: Sure. Well, and in fact in in a time of COVID nineteen and, and counting, we're gonna be up to COVID twenty-two here, unfortunately, quite shortly. It seems like uh, it's almost racketed up even more. We're we're back to doubting science itself, which you know, I would have thought was at least somewhat acceptable in some of those southern circles. Uh, a century ago, but uh, well, maybe not. I'm not sure
0: that they doubt it because, you know, the, the minute that they get sick, where do they go? <laughs> True. They go yeah. to the hospital. They don't
1: go to the veterinarian's office. Well, they, they doubt it for public consumption. Let's put it that yeah, way. Yeah. So I want to thank you so much. This has been the episode For Profit Health Insurance is a Con Job. My guest, Tom Hartman. I am your host, Dan Hill, for Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight here on the New Books Network. Thank you so much, Tom.
0: Thanks, Dan. It's been a pleasure being here with you.
1: Okay. Thank you.